This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. All right, cardio nerds, strap yourselves in for a whirlwind discussion of one of our most exciting and rapidly developing areas of adult congenital heart disease, ACHD interventions. This script was developed by the incredible Dr. Victoria Thomas, who's a fellow here at Vanderbilt University and one of our cardio nerds ambassadors. She just got pulled away to take care of a patient in Tampanad, unfortunately, so she's working as a true cardio nerd right now, and we apologize that she's unable to join. We're honored to be joined by not just one, but two experts in this cutting-edge field of ACHD interventions. Dr. Jamil Awahosan of UCLA and Cleveland Clinic's own Dr. Joanna Gobriel. Leading our discussion today will be one of our ACHD FIT champions, J.D. Sefres from Duke University. JD has just started a fellowship in structural heart disease as of July and has a particular interest in ACHD interventions. JD, welcome to Cardio Nerds. Thanks, Josh. Glad to be here. Hey, everyone. It's Amit. And I just have to say, I get the incredible honor of taking Victoria's lines for this discussion. But everyone, I am so excited to get started on what's sure to be an outstanding discussion on an eye-opening topic. I am first honored to introduce Dr. Jamil Abulhassan, Professor of Medicine at UCLA and the Director of the Amundsen UCLA Adult Congenital Heart Disease Center. Dr. Abulhassan obtained his medical degree at the UCLA School of Medicine before pursuing internal medicine and cardiology training at UCLA Harbor Medical Center and advanced training in adult congenital heart disease at UCLA Medical Center. He now is a national and international leader in the field of adult congenital heart disease with a particular focus in the interventional care of ACHD patients. His work has helped pave the way for many of the advancements in ACHD interventional care that we'll be discussing today, and many of the ACHD interventionalists practicing in the country today consider him a mentor. Welcome, Dr. Abulhassan. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. I'm also thrilled to introduce Dr. Joanna Gabriel. Dr. Gabriel is Medical and Interventional Director of the Adult Congenital Heart Disease Center and Staff Cardiologist at the Clinton Clinic. Dr. Gobriel earned her undergraduate degree and medical degree from Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. She completed her residency at Boston Medical Center, followed by a fellowship in cardiovascular medicine at the University of Washington, while also earning a master's degree in epidemiology from that institution. Dr. Gobriel later completed advanced training in interventional cardiology at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, Harvard Medical School in Boston, and then went on to do adult congenital heart disease with a subspecialty in intervention at the Amundsen UCLA Adult Congenital Heart Disease Center, training under the direction of Dr. Abelhausen. She's now a rising national figurehead in the field of interventional care of ACHD patients, and personally, as an interventional cardiology fellow at the Cleveland Clinic, we are all so incredibly honored to be able to train under Dr. Gobriel, and he's absolutely one of our favorite faculty to scrub in with. Thank you, Amit. You know, now that you mention it, it does sound like I've done way too many fellowships, but I am very happy to be here, and I am honored to share a podcast with Jamil Abulhassan, who I not only consider as my mentor, but also my friend. Oh, that's really nice. Thanks, Joanna. The honor is all mine, my dear. 
Thanks again for joining us, Dr. Gobriel, Dr. Abelhosen. I personally have to add a word of gratitude to both of you today, because when I was a confused, naive general cardiology fellow trying to figure out how to train in ACHD interventions, I called you both up out of the blue. You had no idea who I was, and I asked for advice. And both of you were extremely generous with your time and your wisdom, and I consider you both mentors from afar, so thank you. Of course, now I am a confused, naive structural heart disease and former adult congenital heart disease fellow, and I have more questions for you. And to start with, because the pathways to working in adult congenital interventions are so varied, I thought we'd start by just hearing how you each got to where you are. Dr. Abelhausen, maybe we'll start with you. What first drew you to the field and how did you get to where you are today? Thanks, Josh. And it was a pleasure talking to you a few years ago and giving you some advice and hopefully you found it helpful. I'm now in the middle of my career, so I went through my cardiology training back in the early 2000s. And I didn't come to ACHD by some sort of design. It was actually a very spontaneous kind of thing that happened to me when I was in my residency. And at that time, I was a little bit unfocused. I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. I was toying with different ideas. I sort of went into internal medicine because I was at a loss as to what I really wanted to do. And I figured it gave me a lot of options. So the way I fell in love with adult congenital heart disease is I actually admitted a patient when I was an intern who had an anomalous pulmonary vein, a left vertical vein, and a pulmonary embolism at the same time. And this is back in the day when CT scans were not digitally available on the computer. So you actually had to go to the film library, check out hard films, and there was no multiplanar reconstruction that you were doing. And I remember going and checking out these films and chasing this vein down and being so fascinated by, you know, how did this happen and where does this go and how does this affect hemodynamics? And back then I wasn't even in cardiology. But to be honest with you, it was that case that drew me to cardiology. I just started digging and then I became sort of obsessed with congenital problems. And I went into cardiology because I wanted to do congenital heart disease and ACHD. And when I was in my general cardiology fellowship at the county hospital that UCLA runs in the South Bay called Harbor UCLA, I started a clinic for adults with congenital heart disease. And most of these were indigent patients, uninsured patients. So by the time I finished my general cardiology fellowship, I had a few hundred patients in this clinic that I was following. And then from there, I went up to the university hospital at UCLA where I did my ACHD fellowship. Now, I did toy around with the idea of actually doing a year of a coronary interventional fellowship, and I was actually on my way to do that when I did my ACHD rotation at UCLA, and I so enjoyed my ACHD rotation that I said, nah, forget it, I'm just going to do ACHD. And I went and I worked with two luminaries in the field, Joe Perloff, who's considered the father of the field, and that was really nice, you know, to get to know him over the last few years of his career, and he imparted a lot of wisdom, so that was great and John Child, who is an echocardiographer. And so I actually spent a lot of time in imaging, especially echo and TEE. And during my ACHD fellowship, I was scrubbing in with the pediatric cardiology interventionalists. And it was through that relationship that I got into congenital interventions because they basically said, well, you know, you seem to enjoy this so much. and You're pretty good at it. So why don't you come and scrub in with us more? And then I started scrubbing in with them, not only on ACHD cases, but on pediatric cases. And I basically spent the next two years as a clinical instructor focusing on that and on ACHD in general. Now, this is back in the day when it was still a little bit like the Wild West. You didn't have ACGME approved training in ACHD. So the fellowship was mostly a year that people did. So that's how I came to CAF ACHD patients and to do interventions on ACHD patients. 
And again, it was driven by yet another clinical event where I admitted a patient at the beginning of my ACHD fellowship with single ventricle physiology, a palliated patient who had a Glenn and BT shunt, and he was hemoptysizing and was at death's door, massive hemoptysis. And I felt really frustrated because at that time, the interventional radiologist was not that responsive and the interventional cardiologist, it was way over their head. And I remember even as an ACHD fellow at that point, point really going in and saying, you know, gosh, I've got to learn how to actually take care of these patients because there's a growing number of these people and there really is no infrastructure to take care of them on the interventional front. So it was a needs must kind of thing for me. And by then I knew I was staying at UCLA. Dr. Child had asked me to stay on. So we built the program thereafter and it just grew from there by leaps and bounds. So my story has not been one of pre-planning and thinking about where the field is going and listening to people's advice or any of those things. It's actually been one of following passions, something that clicked and I didn't check myself. So, you know, like with that pulmonary vein case, I had a thousand other things that I needed to do, but I remember just saying, you know what, I'm just really going to follow this. So I just kind of pulling on that string, keep pulling on that string. And that's what I've done with multiple things in my career, but really that's how I became an ACHD interventionalist. And that kind of thing has helped sustain me, frankly. That is a really incredible story. Thanks, Dr. Abelhosen. How about you, Dr. Gobriel? What brought you to this field? You know, I did not have much exposure to ACHD in Boston University, but it was at the University of Washington when I started working with Karen Stout and Eric Krieger. And I instantly just loved the patient population and the complex anatomy. Initially, when I started my cardiology fellowship, I thought I was going to do interventional cardiology and critical care. I loved the mix of the two. But it wasn't until the CCU that I had to take care of a Fontan patient who had the brightest green hair ever, who was overweight and had a PE. And having to take care of that patient was an absolute nightmare, but actually getting him through this was probably the most complex hemodynamic thing I ever had to do as a fellow. And ever since then, I just asked for more ACHD rotations and just because I loved it, but still thinking I'm going to do interventions. And after I spent enough time in the cath lab, I realized that it can get a little bit repetitive sometimes if you just do straight up adult coronary, at least to me. And I love the fact that no two congenital patients are ever alike and the anatomy have to kind of know your way around and you never know what you're getting yourself into until you actually get in there for the intervention and for the procedure or just for the dynamics. So that's how I really decided, okay, I'm going to do interventional cardiology, then try and find a way to do ACHD interventions with an ACHD fellowship. And I kind of straddled the part where ACHD was still not an accredited fellowship and midway through my ACHD training, it became an accredited fellowship. So when I was interviewing, it wasn't really something that was set or organized or anything. I just started calling people, including Jamil, asking them, would you mentor me in not just ACHD, but ACHD interventions as well. And it wasn't an easy pathway because there's not a lot of places that have high enough volume. So it was down to a few centers. And honestly, Jamil is the one who took a chance on me. And he actually didn't have funding in the beginning, but eventually got funding because I was about to go to Montreal and I ended up in UCLA and I loved it. And one of the pearls that Jamil has actually taught me is to be an excellent ACG interventionalist is you have to know how to do everything from A to Z. So you have to know the clinical part of things. You have to know how to take care of the patient in the CCU. 
you have to do your own TTE. I would scan my own patients doing the TEE, reviewing the CT and MR images yourself. So that's how you become the best ACHD interventionist. And then after I graduated, it was an ACGME accredited fellowship and I took the boards and everything, but it wasn't a straightforward pathway to get through it at the beginning. And ever since I've started working at the clinic, honestly, I've loved every second of it. If I can just address one thing that Joanna brought up that I think is really important to give us some historical context as to training in this field and where it's come from and where it's gone. One of the challenges of ACHD is that we're sort of almost seen as a boutique field. We're not one of the essential component fields of any program yet. Maybe that's changing slightly, but historically that has not been the case. And because there has not been ACGME accreditation until just a few years ago, it was very difficult to get funding. So how did we fund fellowships? Well, I remember when I came to UCLA to do my ACHD fellowship, they had no funding at the time. And I offered that I would just moonlight and I just needed insurance coverage. Now they found funding and I really owe Dr. Child for that one. Just like we found funding for Joanna, but it's all soft funds. And that's how funds come for fellowship training for most ACHD programs. They're not necessarily coming from GME funds that the hospitals have. Now, you know, some of us have been able to negotiate things over time as programs grow and succeed and such, but I can tell you it has been an uphill struggle, which is why the two-year fellowship mandate became a little bit difficult, not just for trainees, but also for fellowship programs, because now you have to find funding for two years, not just one year. So as we go forward, be aware of the humble beginnings of this field and how we really had to beg, borrow, and steal to train people, to train ourselves, and to actually provide care for our patients. None of this was given. It was all earned over time by many, many people in many programs. And there are still a lot of places around the world that are still in that more primitive stage of development that we've been able to move past in the United States, and we should be aware of that that these programs will need support to grow over time. Thank you for sharing that, Dr. Wilson. As a second-year ACHD fellow, I definitely feel like I'm both standing on the shoulders of giants and it's very privileged because there was no issues with funding for me. But I definitely understand that historical context. Why don't we go ahead and start by jumping into a case? So, Ahmed, I understand that you recently had your first run-in with an ACHD intervention. Would you mind filling us in? Yeah, let's do it. So our patient was a 58-year-old man with a past medical history of tetralogy of Fallot, status post toxic Thomas Shunt at age 2, and subsequently had a complete repair at the age of 4. So for all of our cardiologists out there, be sure to check out the tetralogy of Fallot episode as part of the series. Our patient later developed severe pulmonary regurgitation in his 40s that led to having a PVR. After a few good years, he developed dyspnea exertion and was diagnosed with moderate to severe prosthetic pulmonary regurgitation yet again. He then went and underwent a transcatheter pulmonary valve replacement with a Vanderbilt attending Dr. Piana. Like many ACHD patients, his anatomy and then the subsequent complications that he had dealt with were interesting and really opened up a lot of room for discussion. Um, and I'm so glad you brought up transcatheter pulmonary valve replacement as our first case. It's one of the most important and complex procedures we do in adult congenital heart disease. And it's really revolutionized the way we care for patients with dysfunctional right ventricular outflow tracts, especially tetralogy of Fallot. Whereas previously, many of these patients were doomed to a repeat sternotomy every 10 to 15 years for their entire lifespan, we can now take care of a lot of these valve replacements in the cath lab and spare patients a few trips to the OR. And fun fact, the first transcatheter valve replacement in a human was not a TAVR. It was a pulmonary valve performed by Philip Bonhoeffer in the year 2000, a full 18 months before the first inhuman TAVR. 
and the procedure has evolved dramatically since then. Dr. Abelhosen, could you fill us in a little on the history of transcatheter pulmonary valve placement and how it's evolved over the course of your career? Yeah, I'd love to. One of the points in my career that sort of really stands out, my early career when I was still in the first year of my cardiology fellowship, I believe it was in 2002 when I went to the American Heart Association meeting in Chicago and in a small room, and I kid you not, didn't seat more than 50 people, this room. Philippe Bonhoeffer and Alain Cribier presented the first case reports of transcatheter valve replacement in human beings. And I was in the audience. There was no seating room. I was just standing against the wall. And you want to talk about rocking one's world? That rocked my world. And it was Philippe Bonhoeffer that came up first and actually presented the experience, I believe, in three cases where he had put an early version of the Melody Valve into RV to PA conduits in human beings at London at Great Ormond Street. Then Alain Cribier came up and presented one case where he had put in what back then was not even known as the Sapien Valve, but it was basically an early version of the first generation Sapien Valve that he had put into an elderly man in Rouen, France. And the field went from there. So regarding transcatheter pulmonary valves, what started with the jugular venous bovine valve, which is the melody valve, being placed into the RV to PA conduits predominantly. And initially without pre-stenting, it was just lay the valve in there and the valve was sutured and still is actually to a platinum iridium platform, which is one of the Achilles heels, frankly, of the Melody Valve platform, because that is a platform that fractures easily. So we learned early on in the experience, both in Europe as well as in the IDE experience in the United States, try to get the valve FDA approved, that if you don't pre-stent conduits, more than 30% of these valves will actually fracture, the stents will fracture. So that's how pre-stenting began of conduits. And I remember when I did my Melody training, there was a big debate whether you should pre-stent or not. And I remember Jim Locke at Boston felt very strongly that you didn't necessarily need to pre-stent if you got an excellent result with balloon angioplasty alone. Everybody else was really pushing for pre-stenting. And it turned out that in the long run, pre-stenting was likely the right way to go. But I'll tell you, Jim Locke doesn't get enough credit for the numerous advances in this field and how he really pushed everybody. But that was an interesting time. So we found that out. And then the next hurdle was, can you put these into bioprosthetic valves? And it turned out that you could. You got a good result. And could you put them into big bioprosthetic valves that had an internal diameter that may be 22 millimeters or slightly larger? And the answer was, yes, you could. We started figuring out how to mount the melody onto larger balloons. And we figured that if you went north of 24 millimeters with a melody, it would begin to fail. It would start to leak. And the first data that came out about that was a beautiful study in sheep by Matt Gillespie, who spends a lot of time around sheep, I hear. But anyway, that being said, we found out that, well, now you could put these in the bioprosthetic valves. And then data started coming out about placing them in native RVOTs, but the melody was too small for native RVOTs. The sapien valve had come out for the aortic position, and so people were now beginning to play around with it in the pulmonic position. And that started with the first compassion trial that was mostly first-generation sapien valves. And then went on to the Sapien XT and thereafter the Sapien 3. And with the coming of the Sapien XT and the Sapien 3, we realized that now we could actually hit much larger landing zones. We could expand these valves up to 29 millimeters. And we found that actually the Sapien 3 could be expanded to closer to 31, maybe even close to 32 millimeter outer diameter if you put an extra 3 to 5 cc's in the balloon when you deployed it. 
And actually, Joanna, I don't know if you remember this, but you published this case report, which is the very first that I'm aware of case report of a Sapien 3 being placed into a native RVOT without pre-stenting. So she blazed the way with that one when she was with us at UCLA. And now we've gone to the next generation of valves and systems, which are RVOT reducers. These are self-expanding platforms that help you reshape the right ventricular outflow tract. I mean, the concept is an hourglass-shaped kind of covered stent that either has a valve inside of it or you can put a valve inside of it. And so the Harmony valve from Medtronic, which is now FDA approved, has a valve inside of it, 22 or a 25 valve, depending on which of the two Harmony valves you use. They come in 22 and 25 sizes. And the Altera pre-stent, which is not a valve, but a stent from Edwards that basically gives you a landing zone in a native RVOT, a covered landing zone, into which to put a 29 Sapien 3. So that's where the field is right now with that. We have seen delivery systems that have improved. Some have been made by the companies themselves. And the great thing about ACHD and just congenital as a field in general, pediatric and ACHD is just a sheer amount of creativity that people show. You know what I mean? People just come up with stuff and they steal stuff from adult interventional, from surgery, from IR, and just put it all together and come up with ways that we can sort of bastardize already existing equipment so that it works for us and for our complex patients. And that's what happened in the pulmonary position, for example, with the use of the dry seal sheath, which has now become standard of care for many of these kinds of cases. All of these things started very organically and they started without a huge amount of industry support. And now ACHD interventions has become a much bigger business. But for a long time, and especially when it came to the Edwards product, the Sapien product, I mean, they were TAVR valves delivered by TAVR systems. And to a certain degree, that's exactly what's still happening. And then we had to figure out how to use them in the pulmonic position. So in short, that's the story of how pulmonary valves have developed and gotten to this point. Thank you for that fantastic overview, Dr. Abelbosen. I watched you give a Toronto ACHD Grand Rounds a month or two ago, and I love how you just consolidated an hour-long talk into a quick five-minute overview for us. So thank you for that. As an imager, it seems like really the procedure can vary widely depending on the landing zone or what you're planting the valve into. So Alvin, I'm curious, in your case, can you tell us more about the surgical valve that your patient had implanted previously? First of all, Dan, as I learned in the imaging and ACHD episode, there's no such thing as a mere imager, especially when it comes to ACHD. But for our patient, it was a 29 millimeter bioprosthetic valve. And I'll say that training with Dr. Gabriel, I've really begun to see how, especially for ACHD, there is no size fits all. And we call the lab that Dr. Gabriel prefers a wild, wild west because you really don't know what you're going to get yourself into. And you let your interventions be truly guided by the real-time hemodynamics. And to Dr. Abelhausen's point about being creative, not more than once I've seen Dr. Gabriel take out the scissors and refashion delivery sheets to do some unique things like potentially putting in a melody valve into a pot shunt to redirect the blood flow. But really just getting an appreciation for the variety of contacts for a TPVR. Dr. Gobriel, can you walk us through the variety of types of landing zones you might implant a valve into and why does it matter so much? Yes, gladly. So I think you can kind of split landing zones, depending on the type of underlying anatomy, into three broad categories. You're going to have your conduits or your pulmonary homographs. And again, those are not just limited to your TET patients. These are anyone that had a Ross repair, anyone with a Restelli repair, and there's a lot of variation in anatomy. They can either be calcified stenotic or regurgitant or usually honestly a mix of all of that. 
So if calcified and stenotic, you're going to be pre-stenting. And sometimes we do a lot of pre-stenting. Why? Because we want to maintain the radial strength and patency of this conduit. And that's the important first step. And then you're placing the valve. So that's one category, which is your conduits and homographs. Another category is going to be your bioprosthesis. So this is where the valve and valve falls in. And there's going to be all different kinds of valves. And you want to know, is it one valve that I can actually fracture so I can have better gradients afterwards or one that I cannot fracture? And then the third big category that Jamia also beautifully described, which is your native outflow tract. So those are mostly going to be your tech patients that have had either a transandular patch repair or an annular sparing infundibulectomy, for example. And those are patients where first we assess, is their landing zone? So we actually will balloon size these patients with a soft balloon and see, is there an area where I can place my valve or not? And that will vary, as Jamil described, anywhere from a melody that goes from 18 all the way up to a harmony or a Altair pre-stand up to 38. And it depends on what you can place in there. And then you either pre-stent in the case of a melody, for example, to have a good landing zone and also prevent that potential stent frame fracture. Or in the case of sapien, as that one case that we published, we can just directly place a sapien valve if you think you have a good landing zone. Sometimes with those, we do rapid pace just to make sure that landing zone is not moving as we're trying to implant that valve. And then before the harmony, as Jamil had shown you that painting he did, we used to be quite innovative of trying to get the two valves that we had, which is Meldy and Sapien, in there. So we do things like hybrid procedures where we'd cinch the PAs and the surgeon would cinch the PA with a lateral thoracotomy or mini median sternotomy. And that would allow us to place a sapien valve. Or sometimes we could even put valves in both PA branches. So we had to be fairly inventive to figure out how to actually fix the PR in a patient where the anatomy is not amenable to the valves that we have. And then finally, thankfully, we now have the Harmony and Altair pre-stent with the Harmony, which is commercially available that fits up to size 38. And yes, Ahmed, I do very clearly remember the case that you scrubbed in with me and you were very, very helpful. And it always makes a difference to have a fellow who also thinks outside of the box in Cat Lab 3, where we did put a melody valve, but not oversizing it. In that case, we undersized it. We put that melody valve over a 14 millimeter bib and it functioned beautifully. Now, that wasn't necessarily per se congenital heart disease, but it kind of falls in that same line where you just kind of figure out what the patient needs and use whatever equipment you have and you do it. And that was for a patient that had severe pH and they had done a valve POTS shunt on her as an RV pop-off and the valve and the POTS shunt actually deteriorated. So she essentially ended up with a left to right shunting, making everything worse essentially. So we ended up putting that melody valve and it worked out beautifully. And Amit was critical in that case as well. That is an unbelievable case. I would love to see that. But otherwise, thank you for the great breakdown. And that's always been one of my favorite things about the procedures, how varied it is. No two patients, as Dr. Abelhosen mentioned earlier, exactly alike. And when you consider the spectrum of the different right ventricular outflow tracts that babies can be born with, and then you layer on top of it the variety of different surgical approaches that people have taken over the years, you can wind up with this incredible, extraordinary array of different configurations. And what I find so fascinating about it is that the procedural considerations are very different depending on the patient-specific anatomy. And in particular, the potential complications that you worry about can vary a lot depending on what you're dealing with. Dr. Abelhosen, can you walk us through some of the potential complications you think about when you plan a transcatheter pulmonary valve? Sure, Josh. 
I think this applies not just to transcatheter pulmonary valves, but it applies to everything we're going to talk about when it comes to the interventional care of the ACHD patients. And I think it begins, as Joanna described, with a deep, comprehensive understanding of the patient's underlying anatomy, physiology, and hemodynamic milieu that you're dealing with. And that's why it's really key in my mind that anybody who goes into this has to have that basic understanding and then building onto that. And so I think you kind of have to be an imager as well as an interventionalist and starts with looking at the echo, looking at the cross-sectional imaging yourself, doing the multiplanar reconstructions yourself. We use a Cyrix on a Mac, but there are other programs that can be utilized to do the same thing. But going through and sort of modeling in your own mind what this is going to look like. And this is where it's key to look at degree of calcification of a conduit, length of a conduit, proximity of the coronary arteries, proximity of the aorta, distance between the sternum and the conduit. And these things are predictive of how much trouble you're going to have. So, for example, if you have a heavily calcified and narrowed conduit, and let's say it was put in originally at 24 millimeters, and now it's down to 16 millimeters, and you'd like to put in a 26 millimeter or maybe even a 23 millimeter sapien valve into that conduit eventually. So you'd like to get it up to 24, uh, 22 millimeters or larger in diameter. There's a good chance you may end up rupturing that conduit if you're aggressive in balloon dilating it because you're worried about coronary compression. And you don't want to put a stent because you're worried about coronary compression. So that's where I find that CT scans help me and me knowing how far the coronaries are from the conduit helps me immensely. Because if the coronaries are further than three millimeters away... If the conduit is not smacked up against the back of the sternum or the chest wall, if there are no anomalous coronaries or coronaries that have been reimplanted, then in my mind, now the risk of coronary compression is significantly lower than the risk of conduit rupture. So in that kind of case, I go in thinking, you know what, I'm not going to go crazy trying to dilate this conduit up to 22 or 24 without protecting it. I'm actually going to start out by laying, say, a CP stent, a covered Cheatham Palma's stent, which is now FDA approved and available, into this conduit at say 16 or 18 millimeters on a 16 or 18 millimeter bit. And so I'm now basically committing myself to protecting the conduit and knowingly saying I'm less worried about coronary compression. Now I could be wrong and end up really messing things up, but this is where the art comes in, right? And this is where, again, studying the case beforehand is really important. Deciding where do I think I want to put the wire, looking at your venous anatomy, making sure that you have the pathways to go up and get there easily. The more you do of that, the less problems you are going to have during the case. The other thing is going and getting your equipment at the beginning of the case. And this is something, it's almost like a pre-case and Joanna and I did this a lot, right? Remember Joanna, we would go into the equipment room together. I don't depend on the technologists to get this stuff for us, right? The fellow and I go and then we go through the case. Then we're going to use this. Then we're going to use this. Then let's grab this. Well, what if this happens? Then we get this. Then we get that and so on and so forth. But we're worried about vascular injury. We're worried about coronary compression. We're worried about conduit rupture. And when I say vascular injury, both access vascular injury and the potential for that, Now, remember, you're dealing with a population that has had a lot of surgeries and cats, and you may not have veins that are open below. You kind of have to either image beforehand or be ready to change the game and go jugular if you need to. And I'm talking about vascular injury in the pulmonary bed. That's wire mediated. 
we're using stiff wires, especially in older patients and patients with liver problems. Like, you know, this isn't a CHD issue per se, but the population is getting older and we've had patients with carcinoid and other issues and malignancies and such who come in with low platelet counts the livers aren't great, so on and so forth. And a patient like that is going to be much more prone to bleed from a wire injury. So you've got to have coils ready. And a plan in place, if I do cause wire injury and the patient starts to have hemothorax, what am I going to do? What you don't want to do is sit there twiddling your thumbs going, um, uh, I didn't think about, um, uh, I... What you want to do with this game, it's like a game of chess. You want to think about not just the next move, but three moves down the line and ensure that you have everything in place so that if things go awry, you're ready to rock. You have blood in the room. You've explained exactly what you're doing to the anesthesiologist. Your fellow knows what's going on. Everyone in the room knows what's going on. Now, Joanna knows I'm a little bit nutty in that I do this whole shtick where we go into the cath lab and I say we're getting on a B-17. And people go like, what does that mean? It's a World War II bomber. But the point is that we are taking off and on a mission together that could become very dangerous and things could go really awry. So you want everybody to know exactly what they're doing and how to respond should we have any issue. And the more of that that you do, the more prepared you are to deal with problems. And frankly, the more problems you end up avoiding. Other things, valve embolization, less of a problem when you're dealing with conduits or with bioprosthetic valves, but a real problem when you're dealing with big native RVOTs. And I think it's going to be an issue too, even with the native self-expanding platforms. We've already seen quite a bit of motion of both the Harmony and the Altera platforms. So what are you going to do about that? You know, it's not a failure if you have a patient go urgently to surgery and they live and they do fine. It's a failure if you did not have anything prepared and the patient ends up dying because you couldn't get them into the OR fast enough. So you just have to kind of know what you're dealing with and be prepared for all eventualities. I'm not saying you have to have an OR on standby when you do these cases, but have a plan in place and ensure that you've talked to your surgeon as well. Long-term complications. The biggest one I worry about is endocarditis. Not so much in big native valves, but in smaller valves, melody valves especially in smaller conduits. And I would think sapiens as well are going to be a problem. They're really the issue is I don't think only related to the valve substrate there. I think it's also related to a number of other things, including immune status of the patient, including prior history of infective endocarditis, and including the residual gradient that's left at the end of the case. If you walk out of the cath lab after putting a pulmonary valve in and you have a peak-to-peak -peak gradient that's greater than 15 millimeters mercury, your patient is much, much more likely to develop infective endocarditis than if you ended up relieving that gradient completely. So now you have to weigh that long-term risk against the risk of coronary compression or conduit rupture. Now, one of the greatest things that's happened is the finding from the Taver world actually about, what, five years ago now that you could fracture bioprosthetic valves. As soon as we saw that, hallelujah. I mean, that changed the world. That's fantastic for us because now we fracture and I fracture pretty much every bioprosthetic valve that is fracturable and try to put in as large a valve as I could if there isn't a major coronary issue that I have to worry about. So you want to get the best result possible with as low a gradient as possible, but you have to weigh it against the risk of conduit rupture and the risk of coronary compression. So there's a lot of factors at play here and there's a lot of art that goes into this, but basically be really well prepared. 
know how to read your own CTs and MRIs, know how to read your echoes, be comfortable with intracardiac echo as well, and have a plan in place for everything. And I approach it like a battle, literally like we are flying in a B-17. And I'll even say silly things like now we're crossing into German airspace. There's a Messerschmitt on our six and people have no idea what the hell I'm talking about. But the idea there is everybody be sharp, be ready, know exactly what your job is. And we're going to get through this just fine. Amazing. Amazing. I love the German airspace B-17 analogy. Dr. Gobriel, do you have anything to add in terms of complications that you keep your eye out for? I just want to tell Jamil, I still go shopping for my own equipment before every procedure I do. And I still do that huddle with the patient. It's much shorter, but with the anesthesiologist, my fellow and my nursing team, we definitely have a plan A, plan B and plan C in case badness happens. So that is not something that any ACG interventionist should ever stop doing. I do have one case I actually want to share with Jamil because I think it's great. It's about the coronary compression case and a very, very high-risk patient who had super cast by conduit and an LED that ran literally just behind it. And she was too sick that our two best gutsiest surgeons actually turned her down, Jamil. And then we ended up taking her and we did literally simultaneous conduit and LED stenting. And then simultaneous melody valve implantation while having a balloon and then LED stem. So it was one of those cases where like, what the heck should we do for this one patient? Because she essentially had no options. But I definitely thought of like, oh, I wonder how Jamil would approach this. Uh, so your training was in my head at the time. Let's put it yeah, but, but you see, Joanna's gone beyond me in one really important way highlighted by this case which is I trained at a time when I was able to basically focus entirely on congenital interventional training. And I didn't do coronaries and I was able to get privileges at UCLA. And right now at UCLA, we have, for example, ACHD interventional privileges that we don't have to do a coronary fellowship, but you have to have done ACHD training. So we went down a very subspecialized track for ACHD early on at our center, which isn't necessarily the case nationally. But someone like Joanna or like Wade, Tan, who just recently graduated from our program, that have done ACHD and coronary interventional training. Now she's able to do that next level of intervention where she stents the LAD and puts in the melody. Whereas I would have to basically bring someone in to stent the LAD and not be super comfortable with all the considerations of the LAD stenting, exactly what stent, what length, what whatever. It's just not what I do all the time. So in some ways, you can see how the field is evolving even as we go from one generation to the next. So well done, Joanna, that sounds awesome. Send me pictures. There's another mantra. I have like all these mantras that's really annoying to train with me. But the other thing is that everything we do has to be publication quality. Everything. So basically, if you take a crappy cine, like I get really upset in the cath lab. Like it just has to be right. And we have to be proud. Like if anybody looks at it, we want it to be something that you could just publish. So I will ask Dr. Gobrial, Dr. Gobrial, do you have publication quality images that you can share with me of this case? It is going to be published very soon. <laughs> Treat me well. It's definitely publication quality and it's getting published. Right. That's amazing. So, you know, I've been lucky to go to war with Dr. Gobriel in Lab 3 a handful of times, but Dr. Abul Hassan, she doesn't just go shopping for her own catheters. She's now at the point where she maintains her own private stock of some catheters for her more complex patients just to make sure they're always available when she needs them. And the other thing you have to have, any job you take, make sure they get you a heat gun. Okay. If they don't have a heat gun, get a heat gun. If you don't know what a heat gun is, look it up, but it helps you shape your own catheters as well. 
so that you're ready to not only use what's commercially available, but you're going to actually make your own bends on catheters for unusual anatomy. And that kind of thing is really important in ACHD still. And I think we'll always be because they're never going to make everything that you need. Incredible and fantastic discussion on the utility and value and planning and indications for TPVR. And I will refer the audience to episode 121. It's our case episode from colleagues at University of Wisconsin-Madison. He was a patient with Melody stent fracture complicated by prosthetic endocarditis with a severe prosthetic stenosis. It was mean gradient of 45, huge blown out RV with underfilling of the LV, coming in with mixed shock requiring ECMO, bailed out with a balloon dilation stent placement, finally followed by surgical PVR after the patient was stable and thankfully made it out. So it was just an incredible save by our colleagues over there. I think it's about time that we move on to another case. And JD, I hear that you have a good one for us. Sure. Moving into the world of single ventricle heart disease and the Fontan circulation for this one. Our patient is a 33-year-old woman who was born with pulmonary atresia with an intact ventricular septum and a hypoplastic right ventricle. So just to be clear, with pulmonary atresia, there's no way for integrated blood flow to get to her lungs. So we're relying on retrograde blood flow through something like a PDA. That's right. So her doctors had to figure out a way to get blood to her lungs in a hurry. Initially, she underwent a central aortopulmonary shunt, which is a connection directly between the ascending aorta and the main pulmonary artery as a neonate. Once she got bigger, that was taken down and she had a blalock tausig thomas shunt placed, which is a connection between the subclavian artery and the ipsilateral pulmonary artery. Perfect. So you have multiple options, multiple different techniques to be able to get blood flow to grow the lungs, whether that be a larger AP window shunt or something that's a little bit easier to control the size of left to right shunting like the Blalock-Tazig-Thomas shunt. Exactly. And she was left like that for many years with all of her pulmonary flow coming through this BTT shunt. Then she moved to the USA from her home country and shortly after giving birth to her first child, she suffered a stroke. And I'll just take a moment to make a little plug for the overlap between cardioobstetrics and adult congenital heart disease here, that really it's so critical that these patients get preconception counseling and are expertly managed throughout their pregnancy in order to give them the safest possible chance at a healthy pregnancy. Anyway, she did recover from that stroke, but that was really how she presented to the adult congenital heart disease clinic. And at the age of 22, she underwent a fenestrated lateral tunnel Fontan procedure and her BTT shunt was taken down. Before we move any further, I just want to welcome Dr. Victoria Thomas, who is rejoining us. Victoria, as you heard at the beginning of this podcast, actually helped draft the script and has been instrumental in putting everything together. So, Victoria, I'm really glad you were able to help your patients and you're now able to join us. Hello, everyone. I'm so happy to join. I caught some of the tail end of the conversation at Dr. Albahausen. Wow, to your B17 metaphor, but I won't delay us anymore. I have a few things that I kind of want to reflect on that JD just shared with us for our listeners about the Fontaine procedure. It's considered at length in a couple of the other Cardio Nerds episodes. So if you have a chance, I would definitely go back to episode 82 with our Cardio Nerds case review from Stanford. They do a beautiful job of explaining a Fontaine. The single ventricle physiology episode is also notable in the ACHD series too. So take a look back there too. But let's review it right now. And the whole point of a Fontaine procedure is to route all the systemic venous blood, i.e. the blood going from the SVC and the IVC directly into the pulmonary arteries. This is typically done in a staged procedures. 
The first procedure is typically the Glenn procedure, where the surgeons are hooking up the SVC to the right PA, and then later a fontaine is formed, and this is where we hook up the IVC to the RPA using a prosthetic conduit called an extra cardiac fontaine, or using patch material with the right atrium called a lateral tunnel fontaine. At the end, you have the circulation where your systemic venous blood passively goes directly into the lungs where it's oxygenated and then returns to the systemic ventricle where it can be pumped to the body. The major difference between the Fontaine circulation and a normal IV circulation is that you don't have a ventricle pumping blood into the lungs, which is pretty cool. Well said, Victoria. And without a ventricle pumping blood into the lungs, the Fontan circulation is entirely dependent on passive flow through the lungs and into the single ventricle. And this results in a necessarily high CVP and low preload to the ventricle and therefore low cardiac output. And the combination of these two factors, high central venous pressure, low cardiac output, is responsible for a lot of the long-term complications that we run into in the Fontan population, which we discussed at length with Dr. Kim in the single ventricle anatomy and Fontan circulation episode. So be sure to give that a listen. So JD, you mentioned that there's a fenestrated Fontaine. So what exactly does that mean? That's a great question. A fenestrated Fontaine is just that. There's a small hole that is surgically placed in the conduit or tunnel that runs from the IVC to the pulmonary artery. And this hole communicates directly between the Fontaine tunnel and the atrium and allows blood to pass through it. And so generally that blood flow will be directed right to left since the Fontaine pressure has to be higher than the atrial pressure in order to push blood through the lungs, we would expect flow to go paradoxically right to left, right, JD? That's exactly right. And that's actually why the fenestrations are placed in the first place. If the surgeon is concerned that blood flow through the pulmonary circulation, especially in the immediate postoperative period, is going to be poor, what she'll do is she'll put a fenestration in that will allow the ventricle to fill adequately at the cost of some hypoxemia from the right to left shunt. When do we get to the cast port? It's coming, I promise. But first, we have to talk a little bit about why we anticoagulate patients with Fontaine circulations who have open fenestrations, because we're trying to prevent thrombosis that's crossing. Unfortunately, due to a history of hemoptysis, due to some aortopulmonary collateral vessels for which she'd undergone coiling, she was only on aspirin, and this turned out to be a problem. So she presented at the age of 32 with a large left circumflex myocardial infarction, which resulted in a transmural infarct of her lateral wall and an ischemic cardiomyopathy with an injection fraction of 35%. On a cardiac MRI, there was some possible thrombus seen in her Fontan circulation, so the presumed mechanism of the MI was embolic. Wow, really stuck between a rock and a hard place with our ability to anticoagulate to prevent paradoxical emboli and the prior hemoptysis. So very unfortunate. It seems like we have a paradoxical emboli causing an MI now. So JD, what do you think? We better close that fenestration, huh? Yeah, I think so. And that was our plan after she recovered from her MI. We brought her to the cath lab for a diagnostic cath first and probable occlusion of her fenestration. So let's take a moment to go over her hemodynamics. Her Fontan and pulmonary artery pressures were 14 millimeters of mercury, and her wedge pressure was 11 millimeters of mercury with an LVEDP also of 11. Her aortic pressure was 90 over 60. Her pulmonary vein saturation was 94, and her aortic sat was 89%. SBC, Fontan, and pulmonary artery sats were all 67%. Oh man, that's a lot to digest all at once. I can only imagine the hemodynamics in Fontaine patients are so different from the patients that we typically see, or at least I typically see in the adult cath lab. Dr. Gobriel, 
Can you share with me and others some of the key differences between Fontaine and biventricular hemodynamics? So, I mean, you guys have already mentioned some of the key points, which is a fontan is connected to the PAs directly. You do not have a pre-pulmonary pump. Your flow is passive. So for it to flow, you have to have higher CVP than your wedge or systemic ventricular EDP. And then as an ACHD interventionist or in the cath lab, you're thinking about what can prevent this fontan flow on its journey from the fontan conduit all the way to the systemic ventricle. So you think about, okay, the surgical connections themselves. Is there any fontan conduit stenosis? You think about central and peripheral PAs. Are there actually any PA stenosis? We see that sometimes in fontan patients, especially, for example, at the Glen connection, you can see that too. Then you think about PVR, and PVR is different than PA pressure, and Jamil taught me that very well too. So you can have a very normal or low PA pressure, but your PVR, your pulmonary vascular resistance itself, may not be normal in a Fontan patient. And we actually try to bring that out sometimes in these patients when we exercise them. And I actually do have an interesting case of a patient that came in with bilateral segmental PEs that in a normal patient, you would have just anticoagulated. But in a Fontan patient, that's a big problem. We actually took them and put bilateral ECOS because it was a major hemodynamic obstruction to the flow, obviously. And then lastly, you look at the wedge EDP. What could be going on with the systemic ventricle that could affect that flow from the conduit again to the systemic ventricle? Could there be arrhythmias? Could there be diastolic most often or or sometimes systolic dysfunction? Could you have AV valve regurgitation? Or in this patient, for example, could you have systolic ventricular dysfunction with an EF of 35% post-MI? So there's a lot of these factors that weigh in in a Fontan circulation that are way beyond what you usually would think about in a normal circulation. And all in all, in your chronic Fontan patients, as you guys have also mentioned previously, you have this chronic, again, high CVP and chronic low cardiac output. And that's how you get all these chronic complications as they grow up and get older that we have to deal with quite often in the cath lab as well, like the venous collaterals, the hepatic congestion, the liver disease, the renal disease, all of these things are as a consequence of this hemodynamics of Fontan physiology overall over long term. Thanks for that. You know, one of the best things that I've learned over my adult congenital years was how to think about Fontan hemodynamics. And, you know, of course, one of the concerns that we have in any adult Fontan who has a fenestration or, for example, a venovenous collateral that we're going to close, you always have to think about, are you going to compromise their ventricular filling by closing that right to left shunt? And that's always a tough judgment call. And so before I ask our experts, I'll just tell you a little bit more about what we did first. So first we decided, well, we better occlude that temporarily and see what happens to the hemodynamics. Because if we wind up compromising filling of the ventricle, we may see some really negative adverse hemodynamics from that, which may make us opt against closure. So we used intracardiac echocardiography to guide us across the fenestration and then got a balloon wedge catheter and used the balloon on the end of the wedge catheter to temporarily occlude the fenestration. And then we remeasured everything. So her Fontan pressure did increase a little bit. It went up to 15 millimeters of mercury. Her wedge pressure also increased by 1.12. This is after getting some volume during the course of the case. And her blood pressure did not change. Her arterial saturation did improve to 91% and her pulmonary artery saturation decreased to 64. So Dr. Gobriel, with those numbers, does that affect your thinking about whether or not you should close this fenestration? 
I think the decision is also a bit tilted because you have this patient's already shown that she's thrown clots and caused a significant MI with a drop in her EF. So yeah, a change of only one millimeter mercury, which in the setting of also volume resuscitation, in addition to the fact that there was no change in systolic blood pressure or cardiac output with improvement in saturation, all in all, that tells you that it's probably okay to go ahead and close this fenestration depends on obviously how long you wait. Do you want to wait a good enough sufficient time to make sure that the hemodynamics don't change? So we usually wait about, I think, 15 minutes or so, 10 to 15. I think we waited about 10 minutes for this one. And after discussing with her primary cardiologist, we did elect to close this fenestration. What we had talked about as being the possible deal breaker would have been if her blood pressure or cardiac output had substantially dropped or if her Fontan pressures had really skyrocketed. But it seems like none of those things happened. So we used intracardiac echo again to guide the procedure, and we wound up closing the defect with a four millimeter amplatzer septal occluder. So I was wondering, Dr. Abelhosen, could you talk us through some of the technical considerations that you keep in mind when you close Fontan fenestrations? Sure. So first of all, I agree with everything that Dr. Gobriel said there and, and what you've said so far, JD. But there's one thing that I've sort of been waiting to hear. You said there was a thrombus in the Fontan. What did you guys do about the thrombus in the Fontan? Because my worry would be cathing the patient with an active thrombus in her fontan without actually somehow putting in some sort of embolic protection system. So that's the first thing that I think about when I hear that there's been a paradoxical embolism in somebody who has a fontan. I'd want to know exactly where the thrombus is and try to avoid that as much as possible in attempting to close the fontan fenestration. This is where I've been using the Sentinel cardioembolic protection system quite a bit in ACHD patients. And unfortunately, you actually don't get paid for it if you're doing it outside of just TAVR protection. So there's no code for getting reimbursed. I think the hospital is probably getting reimbursed, but I personally am not getting reimbursed for the professional part of that procedure. But I think it's important to think about that. So I start by thinking about embolic protection and how I need to avoid that thrombus, right? That's going to be the anti-aircraft battery as you cross into German airspace <laughs> that you want to know about, right? And this is where even a diagnostic cath, you want to stay well away from it. Sometimes there's a thrombus within the Fontan, but there's maybe a large VV collateral south of that or something that's coming off higher up or whatever, and you can cath the patient, but just go nowhere near the thrombus and be very careful with where your wires are going, etc. I generally will use TEE guidance for pretty much any Fontan procedure. And I always, always try to have them do the TEE before I push any catheters. Why I want them to look for thrombi, especially in an older population, right, where you're going to have people with RA to PA Fontans, older type Fontans like that, big lateral tunnel Fontans that may be quite patchless, people with arrhythmias. I generally do not use ice for these personally because, again, I want more comprehensive imaging. But let's say for some reason someone couldn't get a TE, yeah, you could use ice. But I would, again, be concerned about pushing an ice catheter into a circuit that has a thrombus in it. Now you're not only putting one catheter up, but you're putting two catheters up and one of them is a stiff bamboo that you're going to swing in one direction or another. And that's one way to plow a thrombus and not just for a paradoxical embolism, but also for a PE. So again, that's where my mind goes at the beginning of a case like this. The fenestration closure itself is usually a relatively simple kind of intervention. You're essentially closing a small ASD. Sometimes these are tubular communications that have been put in. 
And this is where you have to know the various permutations and what surgeons do what and what institutions do what, etc. But most of these are quite closable with ASD closure devices, PFO closure devices, and plugs if these are actual tubular communications. As far as reasons to not close them, again, high Fontan pressures. But again, you know, you don't want to be so dogmatic or I don't want to be so dogmatic where I only consider one thing. Well, you know, data from the Mayo Clinic shows that if the CVP is above 14, then patients are more likely to die. Well, okay, that's one paper, right? Take it into consideration that this patient had a paradoxical embolism and knocked out a coronary circulation and has a drop in EF now because of that and cannot be anticoagulated. Well, now that changes matters, right? Now, all of a sudden, that's a patient that I may say, well, you know, so what? Protecting them against a future embolic event is now a higher priority than protecting their liver long term because they already have an EF that's bad at this point. And maybe this patient's going to head towards a heart and liver transplant in the long run anyway. And I might as well preserve their brain and their other organs from embolic events while they get there. So these are really complex decisions. And I personally, I'm not dogmatic at all. You can kind of see the way my brain works is to me, it's all shades of gray and you individualize each case. And then you take data and you decide, well, in this particular case, I will apply it a lot more. In another case, I will say, no, you know what? I'm going to push that aside because I feel that there's a more pressing problem. But anyway, that's how... I approach this and I think the rest of what you guys said, I completely agree with. And I certainly do the balloon occlusions as you described and watch the hemodynamics and so on and so forth. But there's also other sources of embolism, right? It doesn't have to be defenestration. It can be venovenous collaterals that you have to think about. So you don't want to just look at the Fontan itself. The Fontan is riddled with complexity when it comes to closing the fenestration. But I agree with you in this particular case. It makes a lot of sense that you did, and I would have done the same thing. But I'm curious as to how you guys approach the presence of a thrombus and what your thinking was about how you were going to avoid plowing that more deeply. Thanks, Dr. Abelos, and that was great. I should have said we actually waited for a while after her MI and actually did put her on anticoagulation for a few months before bringing her back to the cath lab, and she tolerated it fine. We re-imaged with a repeat cardiac MRI, which is how we had identified the thrombus previously, and it was no longer present. So we felt comfortable moving forward. But I've never used uh, sentinel or embolic protection in an ACHD case, so that's a really interesting consideration. The one thing you want to watch out for, though, is if the patient has a prior BT, T-shunt classic, or even one that's modified that's on the right, that may really affect your ability to be able to advance the sentinel system, especially a classic BT shunt. You won't be able to do it. But even one that is not a classic BT shunt may actually narrow that subclavian artery in that area or potentially pull it down a little bit. And it may be difficult for you to put in the embolic protection system. But yeah, I'm using it quite a bit in our population now. And you know what? We look at the basket afterwards and there's always crud. I mean, it's crazy that we don't have more overt neurologic injury considering what we're doing. So hopefully at some point there will be an expansion of use criteria and coverage for such devices beyond just the limited scope of TAVR. That's really amazing. And I think it underscores what you already said about adult congenital interventions is that it requires a lot of creativity and it requires a lot of adapting tools that were made for other procedures to a unique patients in a unique population. So I really appreciate that. Dr. Gobriel, any additional thoughts on this Fontan fenestration closure or Fontan hemodynamics or interventions in general? 
No, I think we've kind of summarized it all really well. I think exactly as Jamil said, that you have to treat every case differently. And the publication, even when you look at a lot of the data in ACHD, it's not exactly based on thousands of patients, right? Our publications are, oh, we looked at 12 patients. We looked at 50 patients. When we have like 80 to 100, it's like, wow, that's a big ACHD study, you know? So again, you have to individualize what you're doing for each patient as you go in. Thanks, everyone. This was a fantastic discussion. Thanks, JD, for sharing that case. We recently had a very similar patient postpartum with Fontan who had had a prior closed fenestration and had some residual shunt who's currently anticoagulated. So this discussion is helpful as I think about our long-term management plan for her going forward. So I think it just underscores the complexity of ACHD continues to grow as our patients age and have survived from multiple new surgical innovations. So I think this was just a fantastic discussion. Thank you all. So Cardio Nerds, we thank you for joining us for part one of our ACHD and interventional cardiology discussion. A huge thanks to Dr. Skorill and Abelhosen for sharing their time, knowledge, and expertise with us. Thanks to JD and Victoria for planning this incredible discussion and getting things running. Please feel free to join us for part two as we elaborate on amazing ways that we can help our patients. Thank <laughs> you.